This is what you're fighting for. I mean, every day you're out there. What they're doing is blowing people off. If you continue to look the other way and shut up, then the oppressors, the authoritarians get total control and total power. Because this is just like in Arizona. This is just like in Georgia. It's another element that backs them into a quarter and shows their lies and misrepresentations. This is why this audience is going to have to get engaged. As we've told you, this is the fight. All this nonsense, all this spin, they can't handle the truth. War Room Battleground. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. St. Michael is the breath of the Holy Spirit who will defeat the Antichrist. Tell everyone that I have great power as one who stands before God. In select movie theaters, only on October 13th. Okay, welcome. Uh, This is War Room. It's Columbus Day, Monday, 10 October, in the year of our Lord, 2022. Wanted to start off, want to get Oscar... Delgado back, the producer of this incredible film about St. Michael the Archangel. You had a really great run. I think you were the number one film of that day. Oscar, you got a new 30-second spot we just put up. Film's back in theaters on the 13th. Tell us about it. What happened the first time around, and and where is this going to be this time that people can go see it in a theater and have that kind of communal experience of seeing this with uh, with people that they're close to or people that are just meeting? Well, it's been amazing. We were the number one film per screen. Uh, they were just super excited. Uh, they they just couldn't believe it. So they were saying, we need to give you an encore presentation. We had another date, but then they said, um, we need to move it quicker and move it uh, further up. So I was like, okay. So what we've done now is, which is amazing, they've given October 12th and October 13th. October 12th, we'll have Spanish subtitles for our brother Hispanics at, and October 13th. So those two dates are um, amazing that people have come out. The War War Room Posse have come out and support because they understand the spiritual dynamics of what's going on. The two characters, temporal and the supernatural, and they understand now we need to get engaged in the supernatural. And St. Michael helps us along in that that area. It's very critical right now as as you see what's going on. Tell us a little bit about the film. How long did it take you to actually... You know, I've done documentaries before. I've done some that's taken me less than six months. I've taken others that have taken me years. I'm working on a couple now that have been <laughs> years in the years in the process. What? How how long did it take you to make this film? When it's were you inspired two, to make it? It, it? it took about two years. But then what I did is I put the bonus features. You know, I I took like the the raw bones of this this uh, documentary, and then I what I did is I recut it and I put some beautiful bonus features so a more understanding depth of who St. Michael was. Why is that important? So we go through the importance of St. Michael, why he, God picked him as kind of the general for these battles and how to take on the evil culture. And the response, people understand this, Steve. People understand the battle that we're in. And so that's why we got the the, the response that we did. And I think they're going to come out again. And that's the war room posse and the people like that, that understand there are two vectors, the temporal and the spiritual. And now they understand that we got to start focusing a little bit more on the spiritual because that's the war that we're in. We need to fight the evil darkness, and St. Michael does that. It's really critical. And if you go to stmichaelmovie.com, all saints spelled out, you'll see all the different theaters that we're on. And uh, it's just been an amazing experience. I never knew how much people are hungry for um, 
the spiritual until kind of I'm just blown away. I'm very thankful to God and thankful to those that have come out. I mean, 52,000 people came out one night. It was just, they were just kind of in shock. I want to make sure everybody in the war room posse goes to stmichaelmovie.com to check out a screen or theater in your area. Sean Foyt, uh, the evangelical uh, musician, preacher, pastor, also had this vision of putting in theaters. What is it? What is it that you and Sean see that's so important about actually getting in these in theaters and having people come to the theaters to see it versus just put it up as two thirds of the films are today, just put it up on and let people stream it into their living room? Well, Steve, as a prominent uh, producer and movie maker yourself, there's nothing like being in a movie theater with other people. The communal experience is just amazing. You're able to really experience on the big screen something that you can't see on a TV or on a phone. And so I think that just brings it to another level. And especially a film like this, a supernatural, it deals with the supernatural, you can absorb it. I mean, at the end of the film, people were praying the prayer of St. Michael. I mean, where does that happen? I mean, it's just, it is amazing experience. I've gotten texts and texts about being able to really re-engage in the battle of the darkness. And I think that's what I want to, I want people to leave with hope. I want people to leave in this communal setting in the movie theater to say, you know what? At the end of the day, we're going to engage. We're going to fight the darkness. We got St. Michael with us. We got God with us, but we got to be able to do this. We got to have hope. And that's the remedy. We cannot leave on the table the supernatural. The temple is important. Great strategy is important. But we really also need to engage with the supernatural because that's where the fight is. You know this. I mean, your posse knows that. Everybody is and knows that tunes into the show are very aware of the spiritual dynamics of what we're dealing with. Oscar, one more time. Where do people go uh, to find out uh, where the but first off, our Hispanic audience to see where it's playing with Hispanic subtitles on the 12th and then the rest of the audience where it's going to play on the 13th? Yes, it's saintmichaelmovie.com. And saint is spelled out, saintmichaelmovie.com. Please go show, we got to show Hollywood. We show that we are in, in, interested in the supernatural, good supernatural, not horror supernatural, good supernatural. And we want to engage in the fight. And I think bringing St. Michael to the battle will help us all. Oscar Delgado, the film is fantastic. The feedback I got from the War Room Posse that went to it was just amazing. And I'm pretty sure most of those people are going to come back and see it a second time and actually bring some friends. Please, Sir, uh, Oscar Delgado, thank you very much. Thank you, Great Steve. film. Oscar, you. Oscar Delgado, the producer of this amazing film about uh, St. Michael, the Archangel, when everybody goes see it. I've got uh, Jeff Anderson is going to join us in a minute about uh, what he envisions kind of the misrepresentation of the suppression polls that are being done right now on the run-up to 8 November. Also, Bradley, Dr. Bradley Thayer is going to join us about the 20th Party Congress, his new book out about how to understand the CCP. Huge week. We're going to be doing special segments on basically the morning show and the afternoon show in the run-up uh, to the 20th Party Congress, where she is essentially anointed emperor for life. Uh, as you know, we're the leading of platform into take down the CCP, and this is another huge milestone, so we're going to get into it. But I want to go to Germany. Uh, Gunnar Beck uh, joins us, a member of the European Parliament for Alternative for Deutschland, the uh, party on the right that try to, tries to uh, talk sense into people about immigration and many other issues. Gunnar, here's what I don't understand, is that 
the Ger- the German industrial economy, given your I don't know the third or fourth most important economy industrial power in the world, it doesn't seem like you have a energy strategy that makes sense for a modern industrial country. And in fact, it seems it's almost based on fantasies. And I I have a very tough time understanding exactly what the German government's trying to do to make sure that Germans, not just the economy, but the German citizens are not going out and chopping down the Black Forest so that they can warm themselves this winter. So can you take a second and explain? I understand you're a party in opposition, and you guys have been in opposition over many policies of what I call the the uniparty in Germany. But can you explain to our audience exactly what's going on? If you have, uh, hello, Steve. Uh, if, you have a, if you have trouble understanding what the German government is trying to do, uh, you're not alone. Uh, I've not figured it out. Uh, the truth is, we are one of the leading industrial uh, producers in the world. Uh, our economy uh, is based on uh, exporting industrial products, and our government is uh, pursuing a an energy policy for the Stone Age. Germany's decided. Uh, under this government, but of course the grants being made by Mrs. Merkel, uh, to phase out practically all modern sources of energy and replace them with so-called green energies. Uh, well, when the UK, uh, when the Ukrainian war struck, uh, all conventional energy uh, 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 was suddenly uh, in short supply, and we are seeing the consequences now. Um, consumer and industrial energy prices have skyrocketed. Our exports uh, have declined as a result of uh, rising uh, or lack of competitiveness because of much higher production costs. So I think the government's imperiled our whole economic model since the war. Germany had a a large trade surplus for about 60 years from the early 1960s onward. Within a year, it's disappeared. It's gone. Here's what, here's what I don't get is, you know, I've been kind of heckling it from, from, from my getter account and on the show, but is there any sense of urgency? I see the Germans reaching out to UAE and I see them reaching out to these other people and, and, and doing this, but they work themselves into this trap by being dependent, at least for a big amount of this, on Russian natural gas. And remember, in the first days in the White House, I had the, the German ambassador came over to see me and I had a very blunt discussion with him about NATO, about not just fulfilling their obligations, but the importance of, of them really stepping up in NATO in meeting the 2% requirement, but also as a symbol to, uh, to the Russians. In addition, about this whole natural gas situation, he was so offended. If you remember this, they went back and le- he sent a cable back to Merkel, a secret cable about my, our discussions in the West Wing, and they leaked it into the German media the next day. And it was like I was some barbarian that uh, was thinking of like a troglodyte on what was pretty basic and has come to pass. But here's the thing. Is the German government working with any urgency 
to to winter is upon you. And having been in Germany in the winter, it gets cold there. <laughs> You're at a very northern latitude. Is this government working with any urgency uh, given the, the cataclysm that you guys face? Well, I think there's a degree of urgency, but not about the impending winter, but about rescuing the planet. Uh, the planet. I think in your first question, uh, you called German energy policy fantastic in every sense of the world, uh, of the world, uh, of the world, and it certainly is. But I think that's been a characteristic of German policies for the last. Uh, seven or eight years, Mrs. Merkel's uh, migration policy was fantastic in that sense. That meant she allowed hundreds, uh, uh, she allowed millions of uh, migrants from the Middle East and Africa to come to Germany. Uh, these are, by and large, I mean, there may be the odd exception, but by and large, these people have no qualifications. They were sold to us as gold coins, as the uh, 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 much needed labor force we needed for a modern economy. But of course, they don't have the qualifications. The, the, uh, the fact is that practically all of those three and a half million people from Africa and the Middle East that have come to Germany over the last seven or eight years are now unemployed and on state benefit and cost us about 100 billion euros every year. Now, with energy policy, it's exactly the same thing. The German government is behaving as if uh, we had the energy sources to replace Russian natural gas overnight. Simple fact is we don't and we can't afford the current foreign and sanctions policy the government is implementing. Here's from an American perspective, you know, the UK, France, and really Germany are, are central allies in the West, not just NATO, but even the industrial, you know, partnerships, trade agreements. Um, you know, we've been close since World War II. It, it, it strikes an American that there's no logic no reason, no rationale, and no urgency. Is is that what it looks like to opposition parties? And if so, even when I read the German media, is the, is the media just suppressing the voices of the opposition? Because I don't really see even the opposition parties getting together and saying, we are driving off a cliff here and going to essentially destroy the nation. I think it's a sad fact, if you look back on German history, uh, that Germans um, are not very good at cut cutting their losses. Once they've made up their mind to back a certain policy, they find it very difficult to disentangle themselves from that, even if there are clear signs it's not working. And I think we are seeing exactly the same thing. Germans, German foreign policy, German climate policy has been very ideal regarding for a long time. Uh, you can be ideal regarding up to a point, but ultimately you cannot spend your own money on uh, world rescue projects up to a point where it undermines the basis of your own economy. And I think we've reached this point now. 
and the Germans haven't fully understood, uh, understood that. Insofar as your position, looking for allies in Europe is concerned, uh, I can understand uh, that you're very concerned because your allies are uh, divesting themselves of the uh, sources of their own economic uh, vitality or even competitiveness. Uh, what we are witnessing in Germany right now is a kind of belated implementation of the Morgenthau plan, namely to kind of attempt to transform the whole country into some kind of green uh, 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 agrarian uh, YouTube. Certainly is, is this, is this, hang on, is this, is, you've hit the key point. After the war, after, around the time of the Nuremberg trials, Secretary of Treasury, I think it was Morgenthau, came up with a plan to turn Germany in perpetuity into a pastoral nation, essentially de-industrialize it. And I mean by literally taking the factories that we hadn't bombed in this mission, taking them apart and shipping them to other parts of the world. And at that time, and turning the German people into a group of kind of subsistence farmers. At the time, people said, well, you can't do that. You know, they've had this problem, obviously a deep problem with the Nazis. That's got it. We've got to, you know, get rid of that. But it's one of the central countries of Western Europe. And the plan was laughed at, not laughed at, but thought just too radical. You've essentially done this. You're in the process of doing yourself. Is this a delayed psychological PTSD from the war? Is that what we're seeing? A, a basically a, a, a central, a country's nervous breakdown that it, it basically takes itself down. I'm afraid I fear you're right. Uh, I think I, I largely share your analysis. I think it was actually during the final stages of the war that, uh, uh, U S secretary of state, uh, or, I didn't know what he was, agriculture, articulated this plan, but it was very quickly rejected because the U.S. realized that you couldn't deindustrialize Germany without destabilizing the whole of Europe. Now, our government now thinks it can uh, forge ahead on climate uh, change policies and it would have no implications for our economy. It's a fundamentally unrealistic assumption. The second point I think you uh, hinted at was that German policies uh, had a kind of very belated uh, response to the kind of guilt complex rooted in the Second World War. The odd thing is that the guilt complex in Germany is now more alive than ever. Um, after the war, it was focused on certain clear war crimes. Now, the government is telling us, we in Germany are responsible for everything that's gone wrong in the world. We are responsible for solving the climate crisis. We are responsible for saving the planet. We are uh, responsible for solving, uh, for taking in more migrants than anyone else. It is totally insane, it's unrealistic, it's a gross overestimation of our own economic possibilities. Germany may be the largest economy in Europe, but compared to the United States, it's about a quarter the size of the U uh, US economy. The, U the US isn't trying anything for the 
kind we are trying. When I went to the US in July and talked to various economic research bodies and uh, economic advisors, including the White House, uh, I put it to them. You know, the German government is forging ahead with its climate uh, rescue policies. It wants to save the planet. Uh, is the US administration uh, going to go down the same route? And the universal answer I got in Washington was, well, you know, we admire your approach. It's very honorable, uh, wonderful, but have to realize the US isn't quite like Germany. Our people wouldn't quite accept this. It would be far too fast. So the long and the short of it was, the answer was no. And our Green, we went with a parliamentary committee. We had one or two representatives from the Green Party. Uh, they left very disheartened. Clearly, I think, in the US, even under this administration, there's a residual sense of reality. I'm afraid the German government uh, has lost any such thing. Yes. Gunnar, how do people follow you on social media? Because I keep telling folks here in the United States, if you want to look at where the US could be headed, uh, watch what the elites in Germany are doing, because it's it shocks me every day when I get up early and, and, and read the uh, European papers in English, that, and particularly the ones that focus on Germany. How do people follow you? Well, I'm active on both Facebook and on Twitter and also now on Getter. So if you Google my name, if you look for my name, Gunnar, G-U-N-N-A-R, and then Beck, B-E-C-K, or Dr. Gunnar Beck, you'll find me on uh, each of these media. Thank you very much. Dr. Beck, thank you for uh, sharing your insights. A member of Alternative for Deutschland in the European Parliament. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Uh, I want to turn now to Jeffrey Anderson, president of the American Main Street Initiative uh, wrote a great piece in American Greatness. Uh, first, though, Jeffrey, I want to get your thoughts on uh, Dr. Beck and what you see our, our German allies doing, uh, because I can't make head nor tails of it. It looks like a suicide mission by the elite. Uh, and I see a little tinge of that I'm glad Dr. Beck went around with the group from the uh, from the German uh, M European parliamentarians and, and can come back and say, hey, the Americans weren't quite as crazy as that. I'm not so sure I feel that great. Your thoughts, sir? Well, we certainly have plenty of crazies on uh, our side of the Atlantic. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on the German, um, what the happenings in Germany, but um, I think that there's a lot on the ballot in, uh, in our elections coming up here next month. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see what voters have to say about the policies of the last couple of years and, and the wider issues that have been influencing the vote over the last uh, many years now. So talk about that, because one of the things that's affected the economy here is clearly this kind of radical, at least for the United States, this radical shift to sustainable energy, this this shift to the Green New Deal, you know, going from Trump. And you were in you were in the Justice Department during the Trump years, I think, 17 to 21. Um, the the shift to sustainable New Deal where, you know, we've cut oil production, you know, we, we have this massive problem with OPEC now you laid out three different alternatives, I think, scenarios. And you went in and questioned one of the reasons I love the piece at American Greatness. You really said, hey, there's a number of these prominent pollsters that are literally just where the mainstream media goes to get their analysis. You think they're really off, given what the underlying 
uh, reality is in the country. Do you want to you want to walk us through that? Sure. I I think it's interesting that the, the sort of go to source for the legacy media is is five thirty eight Nate Silver's site um, that's affiliated with the New York Times, and they would have us believe at this point that the Democrats have the same chance essentially of holding the House of Representatives as Republicans have of taking the Senate. I don't think anybody really believes that. If you ask serious political uh, analysts on on either side of the aisle, um, and yet 538 is kind of the go-to site for so many people like New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, et cetera. Um, If you compare what they're saying with real clear politics, which I think is is, is a much better source, frankly, um, RCP is basically saying that the Democrats' chance of holding the House is almost zero. It's, it's pretty much a foregone conclusion they will lose the House. And that Republicans' chance of taking the, of the Senate is better than 50-50. Um, RCP thinks the most likely scenario is Republicans will end up with gaining two seats and ending up with 52. Although there's a whole bunch of seats that are very much in play that we can certainly talk about. Um, a third source, the Cook Political Report, definitely tends to be left-leaning over the years. It tends to inflate the Democrats' prospects. Um, But I've done some analysis. I just looked at the last four federal elections and how Cook plays out. So I've kind of come up with a a decoder, if you will, a key to seeing how to sort of adjust Cook for their own biases and and get something meaningful out of it. And once you apply that adjustment, Cook seems to more or less agree with RCP that the odds are in favor of Republicans taking the Senate even though it's going to be it's going to be a close battle, and I think election night's going to be very interesting in the Senate, but I don't think it's going to be very interesting in the House, as I think uh, it's almost certain the voters are going to um, express their opinion about the the Biden administration in the House elections. Are they seeing something? I tell you what, let's 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 take a short break, and we'll come back because I want to get into all three, particularly your Dakota ring on Cook, because Cook is so prominent. But I agree with you. Uh, the folks I know in D.C., and we've been on the road uh, with, looking at campaigns and going to events, and we'll be doing that essentially up to 8 November. It still shocks me. The people inside the bubble, you have a conversation with them and say, well, you know, this thing could go either way, even in the House. And I'm sitting there going, what are you looking at? I mean, it's, <laughs> it's are you kidding me? Just the redistricting alone. But then we look at the math and the underlying, uh, you know, the cross tabs. It's just, it's it, it would be a monumental feat to do that okay short commercial break jeffrey anderson dr bradley thayer return on the other side war room posse you already know free speech is under constant attack by the swamp and their big tech allies they resell your communications and personal data while lecturing and laughing at you. I've got the solution. Unplugged Systems, a secure communications company, has an app suite you can install on any Android phone, including its own uncancelable app store, VPN, antivirus, and highly encrypted messenger, better than Wicker, Signal, Telegram, or anything else. None of your message or VPN traffic is stored, analyzed, or sold. Claim your security for only $10 a month. Go to their website, unplugged.com. That's unplugged.com slash warroom to install the Unplugged Suite. It's secure. It's private. It's the way we stay connected and informed. Get it now. Take action, action, action. Use your agency. 
They put Peter Navarro in leg irons for simply doing his constitutional duty. Now they want to put Peter in prison for standing up for Donald Trump. Please go to Amazon right now and order Taking Back Trump's America to help fund Peter's legal defense. Taking Back Trump's America provides a critical MAGA blueprint to put Trump back in the White House in 2024. Buy Taking Back Trump's America on Amazon today. If they can put Peter Navarro in prison, they can come for all of us. Folks, let me tell you about Salty. It's a company that makes a soft gel supplement rich in antioxidants to help people like you and me keep a healthy heart. While COVID gets all the headlines, it's important to realize that heart disease kills nearly 700,000 Americans every year. Yes, heart disease is the number one killer every year, year in and year out. Heart disease builds over time. Hypertension, high blood pressure, bad cholesterol, diabetes, all of it affects our heart. A healthy heart is key to being energetic as we get older. It is never too early to take care of your heart. You see, heart disease sneaks up on us. You can start in your 30s, and when this happens, you're at serious risk by the time you turn 60. If you want to take care of your heart and those you care about, please go to warroomhealth.com. That's warroomhealth.com. All one word, warroomhealth.com. Use the code warroom at checkout to save 67% of your first shipment. That's code WARROOM at checkout to save 67%. Do it again. WARROOM HEALTH, all one word, WARROOMHEALTH.COM. Go there today. You need, if you're going to be part of the posse, you need a strong heart. You need a lion's heart. How we're going to do that is with Salty. Go there. Do it today. Check it out. WARROOM Battleground with Stephen K. Bannon. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Jeffrey, are they doing this because they know they still got to raise money? Because now you're seeing, you know, we talk about when we have Alex DeGrasse on and guys that really get down into the numbers, we talk about what's an inflection point. That's normally a couple weeks out from election day where you can see the big tectonic plate shift of late deciders or people maybe more lower information voters. But part of that inflection point is also the party that's got the problem has to really start to call the herd. And they have to make some tough decisions, particularly people have been around a lot. You're seeing that happening right now. This is happening actually with four weeks to go. It's happening a little early where they're culling the herd. Are, are people still believing Nate Silver and these people because they have to? It's performative and you don't think they really believe it, given your analysis of Cook with the decoder ring and really RCP. What do you think RCP's come out and said, hey, the House is done. We're talking about the Senate, even the Senate, they'll hold all the controversial seats, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, and they'll pick up, looks like they could pick up Georgia and, uh, and Nevada. Uh, so it looks like 52-48 at a minimum. Why, why, is, why does the apparatus still cling to the Nate Silvers this late in the game? Well, I think some of it's certainly wishful thinking, Steve. I mean, when, when Silver's coming out saying the Democrats have a much better chance than than it would appear, and then you, then you see otherwise. Uh, there's a lot of people in the legacy media who, who like the sound of that. I don't think the serious political people on the ground are probably paying a whole lot of attention to silver. They probably know which races are, are worth really pushing across the line at the end and which aren't. Um, I think in the Senate, there's, there's so much work to be done. I mean, this really, in my view, there's 10 competitive races in the Senate. And uh, and the Republicans need to win five of those to take the Senate and Democrats need to win six to hold the Senate. Um, I think, uh, I think Republicans are looking pretty good in, um, 
in Ohio, in North Carolina, in Nevada, and in Wisconsin. Um, Democrats are looking pretty good in Washington, which it's kind of amazing that's even in play, but it looks like it is with Tiffany Smiley mounting a tough challenge against Patty Murray. Um, New Hampshire, although I think that could be interesting, and I also think Colorado could get interesting on election night, but those are all certainly looking to be, uh, the Democrats have to be the favorites in those races. And that leaves you with Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Georgia, and the Democrats would need to sweep those if the others go as they appear to be leaning, although I don't think any of these races are decided yet by any stretch. And so um, it comes a question of, I think Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Georgia are going to be extremely Just important. Hang, hang, hang on one second. H hang on one second. Hang on. I want to go back to your picks. You got Ohio, North Carolina. What are your other two on the, uh, what's your other two on the, uh, on the safe side, you think, for the Republicans? You had Ohio, North Carolina. What else? Right. Relatively safe, at least. Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. Yes. Um, and then uh, yeah. Adam Laxalt out in uh, Nevada, who appears to be running a very strong campaign. And, and I get yeah. the impression that the, a lot of Nevada voters are particularly have particularly soured on the Biden administration. By the way, your holds for the Democrats are I mean, for us to even be talking that four weeks in advance, I never thought. And I think Smiley, she's not MAGA, but she's a she's a great candidate for that state. When you mention that it's Washington State, New Hampshire, and Colorado, I mean, they when we're even having that discussion that that's what they're clinging on to, and they got to run the tables on Pennsylvania, Arizona, Georgia, that gets you to a fifty-one forty-nine right there, correct? So you're saying they almost have to draw to an inside straight. I would, I would, particularly as they got they got a tough one in Georgia and in Pennsylvania, Oz is closing because Oz is hanging crime. We. You see, it was the issue set that drove so much of that. That's why in Nevada, you've got this issue set of inflation and crime and immigration, and it's playing across the board. So I don't know how they've got headwinds or just not Biden, but it's the deeper issue set that they banked on abortion, the end of democracy, January 6th, and the Ukraine war, and, and, and Fauci, and none of that played out for him. Is that how you see it? Yeah, I think most of the issues certainly favor the Republicans, which is why I think the House is pretty much a lock, a done deal. Um, I still think there's going to be some carryover on the COVID stuff, too, that nobody's talking about that. But all the draconian lockdowns, the mask mandates, which were just insane, um, the vac vaccine mandates, like kicking people out of the military for not getting vaccinated, this kind of stuff, I think, is going to also affect some voters. But to go back to the specific races you asked about, I mean, I don't think that Republicans are remotely out of the woods in places like Nevada, Wisconsin, even, you know, J.D. Vance is making it closer than it really ought to be in Ohio. Um, I would still expect yeah. him to win, but who knows? And, and North Carolina is certainly not a given, but th those all look good for Republicans. Um, the uh, the race I've been surprised that the, the GOP has not gone in harder on is Arizona, because um, Arizona was four Three. points to the right of the country last time around. I mean, it's, it's a conservative-leaning swing state. Um, Mark Kelly is kind of a, you know, not a particularly exciting candidate who hasn't been there very long and, and is pretty much just rubber stamped uh, Biden's agenda. He's not he's not cinema from the same state. Um, and, and yet Blake Masters has been outraised more than 10 to one. It's incredible, I think, that Republicans are not sending money to Masters. Um, but I agree that Oz is uh, seems to be picking up ground largely on the basis of, uh, of, of pushing crime and, and immigration and inflation and um, and I, and I think, uh, no, if, I think if Oz, if Oz closes, he's got, 
He's got 83% of the Republican vote. That Delta is the Kathy Barnett MAGA crowd. And I said, hey, forget whether you like him or not. It's Fetterman. He's going to close that MAGA. MAGA's going to turn out like they did for Yunkin on game day for Oz. That's why I feel very good about Pennsylvania. He's run a, in the war room is, has been no fan of Oz, but he's run a very good campaign over the last couple of weeks, very much focused on what he knows is working. Before I let you go, because we want to have you back, the Cook Report, because it's so revered, and I spent a lot of time with the Cook Report numbers. Walk me this. Give us your analytics, if you can, your secret sauce. How, how, what went into the Dakota ring? Well, I just looked at what Cook had predicted over the last four federal elections and then in, in their last predictions and then how those elections actually came out. And it was striking that in their toss-up races, which you'd expect to go 50-50 or very close to it um, in Senate races over those years, Republicans won 72% of the time. I mean, almost three out of four. And uh, similarly, the, the races they said were just leans one way or the other. Um, when they said it was a Republican lean, which is the, the slightest margin they give, Republicans went 11 and 0 in those races, and they won by an average of 14 points. When they said there was a Democratic lean, the Democrats only won by an average of eight. So a six-point difference. It just they've got a definite bias built in, which I, I, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a good chance uh, it's a product of wanting to please a certain set of constituents. Um, but it, once you sort of adjust for that bias, I think they're pretty consistent over time and, and could perhaps be a good predictor of where things are headed. Tell us about real quickly about the uh, about the uh, American Main Street initiative. What is it, given your time at justice under uh, President Trump? Yeah, it's, a, it's an initiative that focuses on the sort of Main Street issues that got President Trump elected in 2016, um, the things that everyday Americans care about that the establishment elites typically don't care about anything from, you know, immigration and, and, and gas prices to, to masks. And we've been very active in the mask debate. Um, so we're sort of a, we're a small nimble think tank that uh, pushes ideas that everyday Americans care about. And, and we believe deeply in our constitution and our, uh, our founding, our founding principles. You, you it's, it's, it, it sounds like the issue set that's going to win this the red tsunami is based upon. So pretty good thinking there. <laughs> I, I think the Democrats, Morning Joe and those guys, would wish they had somebody like you to help them think through the issues instead of the end of democracy, the Ukraine war, and this other other marginal issues that are just not to the heart of where American life is today. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you. Amazing piece over at the American Greatness. How do people get to you? Website, social media, how do people follow you? Yeah, it's um, AmericanMainStreet.org is our website, just all spelled out, AmericanMainStreet.org. Thanks, Steve. Th thank you, brother. Fantastic. Look forward to having you back. I want everybody to go over there and check it out because this is the issue set that has put us in this position. The, the, the politics in the, in, the, in, the, in the polling is predicated upon that, and so that's why you got to meet these organizations, institutions, groups. That are ahead of it. Let's bring in Dr. Thayer. He's always been ahead of it. So this is a huge week, particularly for people like you who have dedicated your life to understanding the CCP and its impact on the Chinese people and the greater world. Uh, so this Saturday, I think this starts this Saturday. Can you explain to people what the 20th Party Congress is and why this, of all these other party congresses, why this is so monumentally important in world history, sir? Absolutely, Steve. And thanks very much for having me on again. Uh, what's going to be happening uh, starting in Chinese uh, uh, in, in, uh, in Beijing uh, on Sunday, actually, Saturday for us, 
uh, will be the, the party's, the commencement of the party's 20th Congress. This is an apocal event. This is a, a, a major uh, event in the history of the Chinese Communist Party and now the history of the world, uh, given uh, China's power uh, in international politics. What's going to happen is that China's leader, Xi Jinping, is going to receive a third term uh, and he's going to be, again, reappointed uh, in, in uh, uh, the events of in the following days uh, to uh, be the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, the chairman of the Central Military Commission, which means he's going to be in charge of uh, China's military. Now, that's significant because what Xi is doing is he's uh, now he's destroyed the rules. He's not just bent them, but he's remade the rules that Deng Xiaoping put in place after Mao. Uh, Deng Xiaoping, China's uh, leader after Mao, did not want another Mao, and he worked assiduously uh, to ensure that one of his legacies would be that Chinese leaders only served, in essence, two terms as general as a general secretary of the Communist Party. What Xi is doing, and he's confident enough and bold but, but, enough. But 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 to do but, that. but hold on, but hold on, but hold on, hold, hold on for a second. It's not just the terms. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't even think. Deng Xiaoping, which I spent a lot of time in my life studying this guy minutely, and I'm not even sure Mao, she is head of the, he's chairman of the Communist Party. He's the head of state. And isn't he actually made himself the head of the military, the PLA? And isn't that unique? Deng Xiaoping didn't have that. I'm not so sure Mao Zedong had that. Isn't, isn't it more than just duration? Isn't that every organ of state power reports to him? It does indeed, and he is a unique leader, but it, it's fundamentally significant because what he's doing is he's setting new rules for China and the Chinese Communist Party, the governance of China. And it also is significant because it shows his boldness. We should expect a very different China after uh, next week. We should expect a Xi Jinping, which is very forceful in making changes uh, in international politics, pushing up against U.S. interests uh, in the Indo-Pacific and globally, the interest of our allies as well. We're going to find an individual who's going to be far more belligerent and far more aggressive uh, after next week. Uh, and so that's alarming news uh, for uh, for Americans, of course, and for stability in international whoa, whoa, politics. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How could he get how could he get any more aggressive? He has built, he's basically has a plan that he's been up, up front about, about uniting the Eurasian landmass and with allies now in the mullahs in Iran, uh, Erdogan to a degree, um, obviously Russia, he's underwriting the entire Russia situation. He's also gone to, you know, Made in China 2025, which, he, you know, the 10 industries they want to dominate, including the top five that lead to the convergence in transhumanism. And he's been as belligerent, I think, as you could get out, outside of. If you look at unrestricted warfare, information war, cyber war, economic war against the West, other than kinetic war in the South China Sea or over over uh, a, a, an invasion of Taiwan or an air or, or naval blockade. How could this guy get any more aggressive, sir? He can get a lot more aggressive, Steve, uh, uh, in every respect um, in India, against India, against Taiwan. Uh, against our interests. This is an individual who's going to be more risk accepting than he has been thus far. 
because he's got his domestic house in order. He's in charge of the party, and the party is in charge of China. So he's confident domestically. And you think that most of the motivation of Chinese leaders has been when you have domestic stability, you can aggress outward. You're far more confident in bringing about the changes that you want in international politics. So, Steve, you're exactly right. He's done so much already, and he's pushed hard already. But the worst, from our perspective, of course, is yet to come. So we should expect, given that he has his domestic house in order, given that he sees an opportunity while Biden is in the White House uh, to move forcefully uh, against um, uh, his interests, uh, what he wants to achieve, unification, in his mind, unification of Taiwan, that is the conquering uh, of Taiwan um, and measures directed against it, pushing against Japan, pushing against the Korea, uh, South Korea, India obviously is a target, Southeast Asia, Myanmar, a far more extensive military presence in Africa. And what has already been, the foundation has already been laid in Central America and in South America uh, to have a far greater military presence uh, there as well. So we're on the cusp in the years to come of uh, tremendous danger, particularly because the Biden administration has been weak and because our force posture is not what it should be in terms of either our conventional force posture or our nuclear force posture uh, in the region to ensure uh, that uh, aggression uh, is going to be deterred. So it's a very dangerous time. Once this guy has his house in order, um, he's going to be far bolder uh, than he has been thus far. So it's a very important week uh, next week for all Americans. The election certainly is important, but we need to recognize what's happening in China and why it's going to make all Americans' lives, um, it will affect uh, the lives of all of us um, as a result of the um, uh, actions which are the Chinese Communist Party is taking. So it's a, a very we're, big we're issue. Gonna yeah. We're going to have Dr. Thayer and Bill Gertz, Frank Gaffney, the Committee on the Present Danger of China, of which Lin Chao Han and uh, Dr. Thayer are part of, on every day, both in the morning and afternoon, because of this uh, uh, monumental event in uh, global history. Uh, for our audience, I've known Dr. Thayer now for a couple of years with his writings, brilliant writer, brilliant um, analyst. Uh, you're not an alarmist. This is probably the most alarmist I've ever heard you. You're not an alarmist. In fact, tell us about your new book. If people want to get a deeper understanding of the CCP in China, talk to us about your new book you just, just you and Lin Chao Han just came out with. Right. I, uh, my co-author, Lin Chao Han, and I have just finished a book, Understanding the China Threat, uh, which is available, which looks at the causes of the China threat. And that's the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping uh, in particular, as what we say that uh, what's happening is there's going to be a car crash, um, uh, Steve. And like cops investigating a car crash, they always look to the driver uh, to see whether he's to blame. And the driver is Xi Jinping, and there's a lot of reason to be worried about that driver. Secondly, they look at the car. Well, the car is the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and that's a very dangerous car. It's a threat to every other vehicle and pedestrian on the road. And then thirdly, the road conditions. And the road conditions are really bad, too, because of China's relative increase in power 
uh, the fact that we've let them into their econ our ec Western economic ecosystem. So there's lots of reason to be concerned. And Steve, I think that's exactly right, that this is rather than, I would say, a realistic assessment uh, of what's coming um, uh, for U.S. for U.S. interests and, and for the American people. All of the bad things that China is doing presently is going to get a lot will get a lot worse uh, after next week. And we should anticipate and steal ourselves uh, for that uh, that confrontation. Just to wrap up, we're going to have you back on, obviously, in the days ahead. You know, we had uh, Gunnar uh, Beck, Dr. Beck, from uh, Alternative for Deutschland, talking about Germany. And you know the German situation, particularly the middle companies with China. And we, I talked after that about our energy policy based on fantasy. Here's what I think is most disturbing. In your writings and your analysis, Lynn Charles, others, Canadian present danger. Whether, and, but I've been, you know, banned, but, you know, uh, sanctioned by the Chinese Communist Party. I think they're the only civilian in history to be fully sanctioned. So they're a mortal enemy to me into war room. But they look at the world as it is. They look at the world realistically. These are hard, tough, mean, nasty people, but they look at the world realistically. And in the West, you have Germany, this great nation, in the United States. And so much is based on fantasy and so much is based on, particularly I talk to people about China, they have almost no understanding and almost no interest in understanding. The biggest problem we have is a elite that lives in a fantasy land and against an existential threat of hard-bitten revolutionary criminals who, if you like them or don't like them, Take the world as it is and makes tough decisions. We, we got to go. Dr. Thay, one more time. Your social media, Lin Han, how do they get to your ranks in the book? We're going to have you back on with your assessment in the run-up every day to the 20th Party Congress. Uh, Steve, thanks very much. At Bradley Thayer at Getter and, and at uh, Truth uh, and uh, Thayer Han one on uh, Twitter. Thanks very much, Steve. And one more time, uh, the book's on Amazon. Understanding the China threat is on Amazon right now. People can get it. It is, Steve. Uh, absolutely. So look forward to uh, developing these uh, uh, arguments next week. These. Yes, the driver, the car, the, car, the road. road I like that. All bad. Road conditions. <laughs> All bad. Dr. Bradley, hey, hey, when Thayer's telling that he's not an alarmist, it's time to sit up and take notice. Okay, we're going to see you tomorrow morning. Every day is packed nonstop, morning and afternoon. See you back here at 10 o'clock in the morning in the war room.